Yeah. So uh, welcome, Professor Thompson. Welcome to another episode of the Intangible Podcast. Yeah. All right. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, it's our it's my pleasure, and I'm sure the viewers are very excited for this for this episode. And so, a first question that I'd like to ask almost everyone is, uh, what inspired you to enter the anthropological, the archaeological field? This is a question that I I kind of get a lot, and I have a different prepared answer for whoever's asking it because there's been many points of inspiration along the way, you know, sort of forks in the road. But um, honestly, the 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 main reason that I think I became interested in anthropology because it seemed that we have the ability to understand something really interesting about humans from a scientific perspective that is kind of a combined uh, biological evolution and, and kind of the cultural and social aspects of who we are and what we do and those things being entangled with each other. You know, when I first started to realize that was as an undergraduate and um, that just struck me as a really interesting thing to be able to study. Yeah, of course, of course. So, it's, I mean, it's a great field and I'm personally also thinking about studying that field. I mean, I love anthropology as in my young career, I guess, in anthropology, I've really enjoyed it. So my next question is, what is your work at Yale and like both in the anthropology department and as a curator entail? Yeah, um, definitely. And in case my answer to the last question was a little bit mundane, I, I should say that I had never heard of anthropology before I actually was taking an anthropology class. And the reason I was taking the class was because I was um, needing some sort of credit. Um, someone said, take this class, it might be interesting. And I had no idea what it was. So I, I actually admit that I was a little bit surprised to be that grabbed by it. And I think that that's somewhat common where people don't even really know what anthropology is. And so the answer of why did you get into what you do? Oh, well, it was because I took a class in it is, you know, maybe a little less accessible for somebody who isn't already in a place in their life where they might have access to an anthropology class. So, you know, in my case, I did. And that was exciting. But I wish so badly that I had more information about it earlier in yeah, yeah. in my life. I think I would have found it sooner for sure. Mm-hmm. So um, what I do now, and um, it's, it's a huge range of things that, that I actually do, but probably in terms of my research identity, I study human origins and human evolution. I know that this is a bit far afield from your um, usual content on this podcast, but it is related to archaeology in the sense that we study ancient humans and sometimes ancient pre-humans. In and my my focus has mostly been on the emergence of humans as a species and not just biologically, but what is it culturally and socially that makes us really quite different from other animals and how have those things influenced each other? In a sense, how have we kind of engineered our own evolution through our social and cultural behavior? And what are the things about humanity that are fundamentally different, but also shared um, with other animals? And what that kind of leads us to is this, this problem that we're facing now where we are simultaneously incredibly successful as a species. We, you know, we live in every single environment. We're the only species to ever inhabit every environment, even go outside of the planet itself. And, you know, that's an incredible accomplishment and we should be very proud of that. But on the other hand, I think we can also see the cost of some of these accomplishments all around us with respect to the impact that it's having on other organisms. And so that kind of paradox, I suppose, is something that's very interesting to me. How did we get here? To this place so rapidly 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, I I guess on the, on that same topic, right, of your work in in archaeology and and the different type of archaeology, yeah, it's something that that this podcast um hasn't seen much of and hasn't seen any of. But I think it's it's a great time to start this um idea because a lot of times when people think of archaeology, they think of only artifacts. But what you were saying, like humans and um pre-humans are very important all to talk about as well and like on that topic could you talk about some of your field work um related to that yeah definitely and i think that your um comment there about the the fact that a lot of people just think of artifacts is really interesting to me because honestly in my experience a lot of people just think of dinosaurs which are not artifacts that's actually is that's true as well fossils yeah <laughs> and and honestly no archaeologist will ever study dinosaurs professionally because Although we often incorporate fossils into our, um, I, I guess, our information, what we want to know about is humans and dinosaurs live way before humans evolved. And so it's not really an area that we would um, try to examine, like, while we're trying to understand people. It's obviously an area that's worth studying. And it's interesting, like I have a very yeah. personal interest in dinosaurs, but yeah. it, it's not a professional thing. Um, that's a common misconception. It's either dinosaurs or pyramids. Um, I find yeah, I've, I've heard that too or, or Indiana Jones unfortunately but um, I guess that brings us also in a sense to some of the topic of what we're going to cover today which is what happens in the field and what does archaeology actually look like okay. in the field on the ground is it Indiana Jones it is not that's the spoiler <laughs> alert right there it is not um, who's oh, doing archaeology no. who should be doing archaeology who gives who permission to do it and you know what motivates all of these people as they're trying to understand something about the past. Um, that, I guess, is is something that I love talking about because of the fieldwork component being so important to me and the research that I've done. So I guess just to kind of circle back to your question about what I do here mm -hmm. at Yale, I, you know, I obviously teach um, various aspects of human origins, human evolution. I am in the biological anthropology faculty, so I look at that like combined um, biological and cultural component and the culture we get out through the artifacts, you know, the objects that people are left behind as part of their kind of cultural day-to-day -day yeah. activities. Yeah. And then um, the field work that I do is the actual recovery of those objects. So it's excavating, finding sites, um, putting holes in the ground, recovering objects, and then trying to make some sort of scientific interpretation about what happened at that site much as you would do like if you were to come to a crime scene and there's no witnesses but like thousands and thousands of years old and that's that's what you were doing in um in malawi am i correct right yeah that's right so over the summer um i was in malawi and i was there for about two months i typically go there for about two months a year nice that, that sounds like a very interesting project i mean um the malawi's ancient lifeways right and the People's Project in Malawi, I'm sure. Um, those were very interesting. And if you have any comments about that, um, like what you did there, I'd be very interested to hear about that as well. I think it's in the title. So the, the Ancient Lifeways piece is what were these people doing in their lives? What were they yeah. eating? How were they organizing themselves socially? Um, how were they different? How were they the same from you know the people who live there now today and also people who live elsewhere? And then you know that's the Lifeways part, the people's part, the Malawi ancient people's um, and then the ancient lifeways are entangled, right? Because um, the, the the use of the term peoples is important because one of the things we're trying to do with that project is understand the emergence of ethno-linguistic identity and how it is that we 
kind of as a species have this incredible capacity to identify culturally and socially with someone we've never met. Mm -hmm. And, you know, normally with other species, what you find is that they either um, identify who they should get along with or not based on who they know, you know, which other actual individuals they have met before. And it might be, um, you know, a biological relationship that they have or some sort of social relationship, but it's like they, they know each other. Whereas humans do this crazy group level, extreme um, social community thing where they use all these cultural you know, signifiers and symbols to unite under some sort of common set of you know, identities. And that could be with people you've never, ever met before, as we see all the time, you know, at sports events and so on. Mm-hmm. And so why do we have this kind of um, extreme shared cooperative tendency? And then at the same time, how do we turn that against ourselves so that we start using that shared identity as the in-group to generate conflict with individuals and other groups that we would consider not part of the in-group. You know, this is what we do at like a micro scale, you know, in the halls of middle school, all the way up to world wars, right? As it all comes down to kind of these who's in, who's out. Um, and, and not always because people are thinking carefully about the reasons why they belong to this group or that group, they just do. And so we're very interested in kind of like, why, why did we evolve that way? What kind of potency has that given our species? And then, you know, what are the kind of downsides of it? Oh, yeah, that's a really interesting, that's really interesting to look at. And now I wanted to kind of shift gears into something that you said before the interview when we were uh, emailing. And you were, so you were talking about, um, obviously now like shifting gears to the preservation aspect itself, right? You were talking about the importance of investment in local communities, and how um, helping lo- helping local communities, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, helps uh, create long-term preservation solutions. Could you just like expand on this and again, talk about your, your honestly extremely, extremely thorough view on preservation yeah. podcast? And I, I, I was truly amazed when I read, I think the viewers deserve to, to hear that as well. Well, you got me at sort of a, a moment when I just come back from the field and had that very much on my mind. So um, maybe it was fortunate for both of us because I had a chance to just put it in writing. But it was um, what I'm what I've come to learn is that when you work in different parts of the world, you have variable levels of interest in the particular type of research question that you might have. And that's going to be really specific to who's already living in that area. Right. So it's it's, it's tempting to come into an area that you think might have some really cool archaeology, you want to do some research, you have your research questions, um, maybe you've got your research funding and all of the official permissions are in place. But at the end of the day, you're working in a place that is full of people. And even these bare landscapes that you often see in documentaries and so on, you know, they're not actually bare, they're full of people, they're just, you know, off screen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, they're living everywhere, all around you and um, they want to know what you're doing in their community and that's a very valid thing for them to wonder particularly if you're doing something unusual like archaeology and archaeology is just pretty unusual no matter where you are but it's more unusual in some particular parts of the world where you, you just don't see a lot of archaeologists doing it and what i've struggled with for a while is how do i make um, sure that I've done the best I can to help the people who live there understand what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, um, and to be transparent about how I'm benefiting. Um, my career obviously benefits from learning something and publishing something, but also I feel 
committed to um, being able to contribute something just in general to humanity, right? To science, like this is knowledge that we might be able to get from a place that hasn't been well researched. And then, you know, we, we all know something we didn't know before. But, um, you know, it's a very reasonable thing for people around us to say, well, what do we get uh, out of this? Yeah. And, you know, that may or may not necessarily need to be that they're um, in a position where, you know, it, it's hurting them, you know, that you're there. But on the other hand, you don't really want to come into someone else's community, do some stuff um, and then leave and, and not have them really have a sense of what it was that just happened and where they fit in. And particularly um, the kind of academic model of publishing where you put your stuff in these scientific journals and people in the communities where you've been working might not necessarily ever see that and they might not know what kinds of objects you've been finding and what they what they actually tell. And that can lead to a lot of misconception about, oh, well, you know, there are all these people coming from far away. They're coming into our community. They're, they're sort of over there digging a hole. Um, yeah. What are they looking for, right? And and of course the the obvious conclusion would be there's something valuable there, mm -hmm. and and there is there's always something valuable, but it's it's a different sort of value, right? It's the value of of knowledge and information, and it's it's valuable to us um, coming with our research question, not necessarily valuable to the people who live in the area. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of um, trying to do the job that you've been funded to do you know to do the research but on the other hand you've got this commitment that you need to make to be able to help the folks around you know what it is that you're actually up to and i think that in the long term you're never going to be able to conserve a site um, in terms of its archaeology and its long-term legacy if there's misunderstanding about what's happening mm -hmm. and furthermore you have an obligation to the community to be able to you know, give them information and let them decide what they want to do with it rather than sort of having this idea that they, they should be interested in what it is that you're doing. Uh, maybe they are, maybe they're not, but at least give them, you know, the opportunity to figure that out on their own. And I think that once you kind of get to that point in the work that you're doing, especially internationally, you're going to be in a much better position to protect these sites in the long term because then people are actually interested. And I think that matters especially with the kind of work where, um, you know, that I'm doing where the archaeology is extremely old. It's mm -hmm. very um, abstract to a lot of people to think about these ancient people living thousands and thousands of years ago. It's not big monuments and obvious things. And so it might not be clear um, that there would be any educational value in doing that work. And it might seem um, that, you know, you're, you're just sort of making things up. Um, and so, I guess all of that rambling is really about how um, important it is to me to be able to connect with the community and acknowledge that the community is there. Um, it's not separate from the research you're doing. It is very much a living part of the everyday decisions that you have to make as a researcher. Yeah, yeah. Like as you said, archaeology doesn't just happen in like a black hole, right? It's part of it's part of the local community. It's part of the international community as well. It's it's part of everything. And I I, I did have a question that just that just came up to me when you were talking about all this, right? Is there a difference in preservation practices, but also the way you go about things when the archeology span you're doing is um, like with artifacts compared to um, like zoo archeology? span Is there a difference between the two? And how would you go, um, and how would you go about the difference in like thinking about preservation when it comes to those two? Yeah, I think that um, 
And first of all, it occurs to me that as I'm talking, maybe some of the people on your podcast don't um, actually even know, you know, where it is I'm talking about working. So Malawi is a small country in southern Central Africa. And, you know, I'm based at, at Yale University, which is in New Haven in Connecticut. And um, it's, a, it's a very kind of different cultural context, obviously, from where I am now, but also where I've done a lot of my training. I've done training in various parts of the world. And that also kind of leads to this issue of um, how to conserve things. And we think about things, right? Things can be objects. Things can also be sites, uh, places. And having some authentic buy-in from the people who live right there is, is going to be absolutely essential for there to be any um, hope that we're going to have these sorts of, of cultural resources um, available in the future for study. And something that you're doing as, as an archaeologist when you go to a place that's not used to having archaeologists around is you're drawing attention to sites and places. And that can be good attention or that can be bad attention. And so when you decide to do that, you're, um, you know, you're potentially in a position to actually create a threat to the very sites that you're trying to study and preserve. Because um, the more misunderstandings swirl about what it is that you're doing, uh, the more likely it is that you're going to return someday or someone else might return someday and not find the place in the same kind of condition. So in terms of conservation, I think that um, you might have been asking me about specific objects, but just thinking about conservation of places. Um, if that's a concern to us, then we need to be much more deeply engaged with the community aspect of things. And I think historically we have been as a discipline. And that means really ensuring that the people in the local community have as much involvement in the project as they want to have, um, either through direct participation or, um, you know, all the way up through kind of analysis of remains. And every country that you work in is going to have different um, laws and standards and also just way different access to resources um, to conserve things. So sometimes they go to museums and different museums will be differently resourced in terms of people who know what they're doing um, with specific kinds of objects. Um, you know, people who have like formal training in the conservation of fossils, for example, are not going to be in every single place. And then, you know, what if they know what they're doing, but they just don't have the, um, you know, access to the materials that they would need to actually do it. Um, sometimes you can make a plan and you can kind of use more locally based materials to try to help with that. Sometimes um, it's really just not best for the objects, you need very specific things like chemicals and um, special padding and acid-free papers and things that cost money. And then if you are working in a place that doesn't have a lot of investment in those sorts of conservation materials, then you're immediately going to run into a lot of trouble being able to do that. So um, yeah, the world's, the world's cultural resources are definitely conserved at different levels of um, quality for, in terms of like their long-term potential. And that was a roundabout way of saying, what do I do specifically with the objects we find? That's all very context specific. It depends on the site and the conditions of preservation and, you know, all of that stuff is very, very site specific. Of course. And yeah, and um, bringing uh, the focus back like uh, to Yale, I had a question about the, the Yale Paleo Archaeology Lab that, that you run. Yep. And I'm just wondering, like, what what's the what, what what do you do in that? Yeah. So we're very privileged to be able to export on a temporary basis materials from Malawi to work on there, wow. and um, that's 
not necessarily common anymore because of this harmful legacy of people going from better resourced places into more poorly resourced places and um, particularly former colonies and kind of essentially extracting artifacts and objects just as um, they were extracting minerals and other sorts of economic things that had more economic uh, value. And then they end up in the world's museums, mm. these objects, and not always necessarily in the best condition in the sense that maybe they are well conserved and they have access to a climate controlled room, but they might have been um, jumbled up, um, split. You know, you have collections that come from a particular site and they've been split into different parts of the world, different museums, so you can never study them all together in one place. This is kind of the legacy of museum collecting, um, much of which was kind of colonial in nature that we're all contending with. And um, what I tried to do very consciously that's different is ensure that any of the materials that I do export um, are are exported as necessary. So they're not being exported just indiscriminately and they are never being exported on a permanent basis. Mm-hmm. Um, they are always meant to go back to Malawi and that doesn't matter where or how they end up being curated there, um, it's our obligation if we want to study them and recover them to provide the resources they need to be able to, you know, have the boxes that they need, have the the labeling pens, have the adhesives, have all of the things that are necessary to curate that collection uh, back home in the home country. So they they get come here. Um, I work on materials, various students work on materials. It's my hope that the materials that we do this with are actually going to become smaller and smaller in volume over time as capacity continues to increase and more of this data collection can happen and the fossil preparation can actually happen in Malawi itself. That would be the ideal um, kind of scenario. And then having, of course, scholars from Malawi handling and leading most of this work and me maybe providing some support in a more specialist kind of way. Um, That would be the long-term goal of all of this. That fits perfectly into what you're saying, right? Getting the local community involved. So the preservation can continue for years and years on end, right? Even after even after maybe you move along to another project or um, other archaeologists come and go, right? The preservation of sites like the one in Malawi and all over the world continue, right? That's the goal. So. That is the goal. And I think that that's the most sustainable goal because it's not a sustainable model to continue to have to think about... Um, you know, foreign groups coming in as with all of the the leadership and the knowledge and the resources, or at least the majority of it, and then um, most of the work taking place outside of the home country. There, there must be um, a future that you know doesn't actually see that as as being the norm, where it's reversed and the majority of work is being done by people who are you know residing in the country and from the country where the materials come from. And um, that would be, I think, the, you know, kind of the dream um, situation. For sure. For sure. Well, thank you, Professor Thompson, for uh, coming on the podcast today. And for all the viewers and uh, listeners who want to find out more about Professor Thompson's work, I'll include some uh, links and some extra information in the description. So uh, please go check that out. And certainly this was, this was a great episode. And again, hearing, hearing, your theory again about how to keep the um, preservation within the local communities and how like helping local communities grow provides long-term solutions that that was that's just really a key takeaway and I'm really glad that this worked out so thank you so much for coming on
I appreciate it so much that you, um, you know, thought to contact me about it and you've given me a little bit of a platform here. So, you know, maybe before I sign off, I'll just say one last thing, which is that honestly, this is not, um, it's, it's wonderful to have these things as goals, but at the moment, the way that academic research goes, uh, it's not structured to be able to support that um, long-term goal very well because, um, you know, most of the funding is to do the research, um, treating it almost as if it's separate from the community work. And what I would hope to see would be a future in which community engagement isn't considered a separate thing. It is a part of research. It is acknowledged as a just as important and critical aspect of doing the research as things like airfares and shovels. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So thank you for letting me just kind of have a, a platform to say that. I hope that makes it onto it. No, of course. Thank you so much. Thank you.